Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio and its Biggs Alzheimer's Institute, expanding the horizons of dementia research and advancing comprehensive care. Learn more at uthealthdementia.org. Ten years ago, Lauren Miller Rogan was an up-and-coming screenwriter and actress in Hollywood with a secret. I was in this support group with this group of young people, 10 or 12 of us or whatever, who were in a very similar boat. That boat, that secret, was being young and caring for a parent with dementia. Lauren was just in her late 20s, but for many years already, she, her brother, and her dad had been struggling to care for her mom, Adele. Adele Miller was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's at age 55. The family kept Adele's diagnosis extremely private. Only Lauren's husband, comedian and actor Seth Rogen, and his parents also knew. But the impact on Lauren's life was becoming overwhelming. And gradually, she and Seth started to let a few close friends know about Adele's condition. That's when one of those friends approached them with an idea. He had gone to just a very small sort of variety show that was a very small fundraiser for a charity. And he was like, you know, what if we what if we do that for Alzheimer's? We know comedians and we can get some musicians and we'll throw a show and we'll raise some money and, and that would be great. As Seth later explained to an audience. So we did the only thing we knew how to do as comedy writers. We gathered some friends together to host a show called Hilarity for Charity. Lauren, Seth and her family held a comedy show with celebrity friends as performers. It brought in a little money to contribute to Alzheimer's research. But then Lauren got a much bigger idea. This is 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. Lauren Miller Rogan knows firsthand how hard it is to take care of someone when they can't care for themselves, how relentless it is, and how much it takes over a family's life. So Lauren's big idea was to help people like herself and people with fewer resources, families who do caregiving. I was like, well, we're raising money. Can we pay for care for people? Can we pay for a caregiver to come in? How do we get caregivers respite with the money we're raising? Why not just improve people's lives today in this moment, not just in 50 years, maybe with a magic cure that we're not even barely close to? Lauren and Seth started to hold more charity events, more comedy nights, and small variety shows until they turned around and realized they'd built a national organization, the nonprofit Hilarity for Charity, or HFC. HFC raises money for caregivers to support families helping loved ones with dementia. And this fall, HFC turns 10. And since it's our 10th birthday, we are throwing ourselves a birthday party for charity, for our own charity. And at that party, we're going to have a Ferris wheel, food trucks, and carnival games. It'll essentially be exactly like every 10th birthday party you've ever been to. Come party with... Hilarity for Charity has raised enough money in 10 years to pay for nearly 400,000 hours of caregiving for families who need a break. There are webinars and online support groups, brain health news, and humor. It's all on a bright, colorful website where comedians, actors, and friends drop in. Uh, if, if you know someone with Alzheimer's, visit them. And uh, the best thing to do is give them like music or things from their childhood to help them, you know, 
kind of, it, it puts him in a good place. Like for my grandmother, I like to go visit her and I tell her a really, really mean racist joke. And it makes her feel like a little girl again. A lot of people are worried about immigrants coming in and taking our jobs. I'm worried about Americans taking immigrant jobs. I got a massage from a Midwestern white lady. And it essentially felt like a cat was walking on my back for an hour. So uh, everybody out there, even you at home, sing along with me and remember, you're not alone out there. Lauren Miller Rogan and her dad, Scott Miller, talked with me about hilarity for charity and about caring for Adele Miller. I wanted them to start by telling me who Adele was before she had dementia. Scott remembers how he met Adele in college when she'd borrowed a book he loaned to a friend. And I'm very, very picky about my books. They have to be just so. I'm a little bit careful about (laughs) my books. Anyway, he brought the book back to me after he was done, and the corner of the book was bent a little bit. I said, what'd you do to my book? He said, I was some girl in in my group that that did it. A couple of weeks later, finally got the courage to talk to this pretty girl in my sociology class. My friend comes around the corner, and I see him out of the corner of my eye, and he starts pointing, and he says, that's the girl. That's the girl. I I asked her, I still have the book. Thank God he forgave her. (laughs) Yeah, and I forgave her. But um, yeah, so we met in college. We blocked traffic on Northern Boulevard in demonstration against the war, the Vietnam War. I got her into all kinds of trouble. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't very political when I met her, but um, she did gradually. and, And after she was already diagnosed with Alzheimer's and she could barely communicate with people, she still insisted on going out to campaign for Barack Obama. It was amazing. She was a really passionate woman. You know, she really, if she was going to do something, she did it 110%. Yeah, everything she did. Everything, yeah. When she graduated from college, uh, there were very few teacher jobs in New York available at the time. Her attitude was, if there's one job, I'm going to get it. And that's the way she was. She was just a really caring, passionate person. When I think of her, that's what I think of her, is doing the things she wanted to do and accomplishing what she wanted to accomplish. So... Adele Miller became an accomplished teacher, a dedicated parent. She had a normal family life. Until the day Lauren noticed something really off about her mom. Lauren was only 22. I mean, it was my college graduation. We were all together for the weekend, and she told me the same story a couple times. I don't actually remember the story. It was about her friend. I don't remember the details or whatever. But because both of her parents had... Alzheimer's slash dementia, I just kind of knew in the way that she repeated it and kind of had no idea that she did. You know, and she for years would would say things like, when I get Alzheimer's, when I get Alzheimer's. And I would always say, stop saying that. Don't say that. Mm -hmm. Um, But she would. And, you know, I understand what she saw with her parents probably was, you know, scary. But I didn't say anything about it for years, literally like a year, two years or something. Um, And then it was about a year and a half later and and I had started dating my now husband and it was my birthday and my parents came out to LA to visit. It was the first time I said something out loud, which I said to Seth uh, after they left, something was wrong. But I don't know, dad, I don't know what your first sort of early memories were. Well, you know, hindsight's 2020. So, you know, looking back on it, I realized that she was becoming much more argumentative. 
and she would go over and over the same thing in these arguments. And I'd say, we already went over this and over this. And it would get worse year after year. And then it wasn't until, I guess, several years of this, and finally Lauren mentioned it. My son, Dan, also mentioned it. And I finally took her in to be uh, looked at. And uh, it's a process. It, it happens gradually, I think. Um, and sometimes we just don't notice it. I remember we had this one conversation. I remember, Dad, I remember sitting like in the TV room on the couch. And I just remember she, she was very insistent that we not tell anyone. Yes. And so this yes. wasn't like a, we got the diagnosis, we're sitting down to talk about a conversation. It was just an early on conversation where we were talking about it. And she was very adamant that we were not to tell anyone, even though at that point it was somewhat, somewhat, I will say somewhat obvious. Um, but she had a lot of shame and, and I'm sure that stemmed from fear, again, from what she saw with her own parents. She was still teaching at this point? Yes. Yeah, she taught for three or four years after two years. It was more like five or six years she taught. And um, what happened was, and I didn't know this, although I, I just guessed it, I guess, they kept taking away her responsibilities. And they didn't say anything to me, but I, at some point I would go into school with her on the weekends, and of course during the week at night, and help her with the work as they kept taking responsibilities away. And then finally after five years or whatever it was, six years, um, I got a call from the principal and said, um, we can no longer do this. So they knew, obviously, and, and just we didn't talk about it. And, and same with her friends, her fellow teachers. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know like what the other teachers and what the principal, what, they, what their conversations were. Yeah, I did speak with the assistant principal and asked them specifically. Yeah, they, they knew years. Yeah in advance of her finally being forced to retire, which was a challenge in itself. Yeah. Because I got the phone call, and then I had to get with Adele and say, um, you know what would be a good idea? If you're retired. And I tried to find a way, and um, it still wasn't easy, but it worked. It worked. Eventually, I think, you know, once she was more advanced, you know, I would say like, I'm, I'm a creative person. I'm a share bear. Like, I don't keep my feelings hidden inside at all. Um, and so eventually I did start talking to people, which is why HFC exists. Um, but those early years when I, you know, really tried never to speak about it with other people, it was really difficult. But eventually, you know, once she was more advanced, it was like, you know what? She wouldn't stay quiet about this either. And you were across the country. Did you, I yeah. mean, this is happening in your 20s. That's mm -hmm. really early. Yeah. Did you have any sort of support group or anybody that could give you guidance on that or just family only? Not at first. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time on the internet and it was really sad. And there were a lot of really, 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 really sad stories that I would read and were scary. You know, I was like, I'm the only young person this is happening to and felt just so alone. And I would talk to my husband who was wonderful, but he's not a trained, uh, you know, therapist or anything. So eventually he suggested I go to therapy. And eventually um, I did go to a support group. The first support group I went to was just sort of like an open support group for like an all ages thing. And I always remember there was a man in there in his late fifties talking about his mother in her late eighties. And here I was probably 23 or four, maybe four, 25, 26 at the time. And I left so angry because I was like, I would give anything to have another 30 years with my mom. I'd give anything to have another three years with my mom. 
Lauren finally found another support group for younger people. And it was people in a similar situation. And it was the first time I was like, oh, not alone. How good it feels to be seen by someone who understands, to be heard by people who get it, to be supported and hugged by someone who's going through it was, oh God, just so impactful for me. And then, you know, the more I started talking about it, the more we used the platform that Seth had uh, to talk about it, the more I realized how far from alone I was and how there were so many young people unfortunately, my age going through it, um, you know, which is all what led to the creation of, of HFC eventually. So at first, I wonder what physically and emotionally how you both experienced caring for this person you love as she's changing so much. What did it take to take care of her? Yeah, well, there's a saying about Alzheimer's being the disease of a thousand cuts. Okay. And it's mainly for those people that are uh, the primary caregiver who see within a day things that happen as the disease progresses, and it's horrible. But the main things, which are guilt, frustration, anger, that starts early and it never stops. Those things are just happening all the time. And so as, as Adele got worse and more challenging, you know, being coming incontinent and running off and trying to get out of the car while it's moving, you name it. These things um, haven't changed. It's the guilt, frustration, and anger, which is totally different than like when I cared for my mother last five years of her life. I was her caregiver. But that's a totally different kind of caregiving. This is someone who's helpless, who's afraid, and they're in your care and... I guess there's this one memory that that explains this part of it, which is I had talked her into going to support groups, uh, which I thought would help her early on. And at first she didn't want to go, but then when she got there, she was into it. I'm sitting there and like Lauren was saying about young people not having anybody, I was the young person in the group. It was all these people in their 80s and 90s and they're talking about they got back from Europe and forgot the guy forgot where his keys were, and I'm like, this is your problem? Mm-hmm. I mean, it mm-hmm. was ast- astounding. And a couple of years, or three years into it, when Adele had progressed into the disease, we were at a support group. She was in one room. I was in the other. And uh, apparently they had to cut uh, the patient's group short because Adele was just out of hand. And she came down, and I was there with the other caregivers, and she came running to me, crying, tears streaming, saying, please don't leave me here. So anyway, so you're caring for somebody that's helpless, and that's that's a tough, tough thing. Are you doing enough? Are you doing the right things? And so it's when she'd been sick for five years, six years, when Adele was really bad and um, Lauren and Seth came down, Seth's parents came down and explained to me what they thought we should do. And they were right. It was the best thing for everybody. And so we moved. A woman in Lauren's support group had pointed out that Los Angeles is full of duplexes. 
why not see if the family could find a duplex where her dad could live on one side and Adele with a caregiver on the other. It would mean a move from Florida to California, but it would also mean more family nearby and more support. And so I I called my dad and I feel like you didn't even say like, I'll think about it. I feel like literally on that call, maybe you thought about it. I don't even know. No, 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 no. It It was like, gee, it's the right thing. Yeah. It's the right thing for everybody. She gets the best care. You get near family. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the summer of 2012 that they moved here. And then, you know, it was far from an ideal reality for us. Um, It was ideal for the reality that we were facing. I maybe can't speak for my dad, but to me, like the most difficult period, because she would pace all day, literally from the moment she got up to when she would pass out, she would walk and she would have bouts of screaming for all day. Did you say hours? All day. Yeah. My next door neighbor, I'd hear my next door neighbor yell out, shut up. Mm -hmm. And she was like this for several years before we came to LA. Coming back from Lauren and Seth's wedding, they had called the police from the airplane to the airport to get ready for us because that's how it was on the plane coming back. Oh my God. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't until she was bedridden that it started to calm down. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, kind of like getting control of the fire, the forest fire. Yeah. It wasn't until she was bedridden um, and really withdrawn into herself 99%. You know, at that point we had these full-time caregivers who had come in, who are saints, angels, I don't know what you want to call them, but <laughs> not human with you know their abilities to care. I guess in some ways it was better because my dad got some relief. The, the fact that like we could take him out to dinner, you know, he could come over, or having that respite for him, I don't know, dad, I don't want to speak for you, I think was really, it changed your situation. I think had that not happened... I don't even want to think about what would have happened to your help. Oh, there's no, there's no question. If I, I'd stayed in Florida, I might not have made it. I mean, physically, the exhaustion was incredible because she was incontinent and for a long time didn't even would tear off her diapers. The cleanup, the preparation, the doctor's appointment, she, the whole thing, just on and on and on, Laundry, and on yeah. running after her. We came to LA once. And we were in the hotel room, and, and I went in the shower, and sure enough, I came out of the shower. She unlocked the door and was gone. I ran ran out and found her two blocks away. Just lucky. Just exhausting. If I hadn't come here, I would say there's a good chance I would, wouldn't have made it. I don't know how anybody can do it without the resources that we had. We need to take a break. And when we come back, how Lauren's family moved from grief to giving. I'm Kitty Isley. This is 24-7 from Texas Public Radio. The University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio is proud to support the 24-7 podcast. 
It's Big's Alzheimer's Institute is expanding the horizons of Alzheimer's research while supporting everyone involved in dementia care, from patients and families to healthcare professionals. Learn more about the free online programs and educational resources at uthealthdementia.org. You're listening to 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. I'm Kitty Isley. So Lauren and her dad, Scott, make the big decision to move Scott and Adele from Florida to California. Around the same time, Lauren and her husband, Seth, are thinking about their friend's idea of literally putting on a show for Alzheimer's to raise some money. And if you think about it, it was pretty unusual to be open about a diagnosis. You know, when we started on this 15, 16, 17 years ago, like truly people really were whispering Alzheimer's. And now I think much less so. Mm -hmm. And so we had our first show as a fundraiser for the Alzheimer's Association. Um, And with no thought of this should become more than that, this could become an organization. But from that, people really started contacting us and, you know, started really realizing there are a lot of young people, not just the people in our support group, but nationally, there are so many people. And I had seen firsthand how much having a little bit of money changed my family's situation. And again, in my support group, I saw how not having money really affected people's situations and how they could care for their loved ones. Lauren and Seth's shows made money, but they had to figure out how to get that money to people who needed it. So Hilarity for Charity set up a system for families to apply for financial help. And my dad and I and a couple other people, we started, you know, reading these applications every month and for people who wanted to get respite care? For people who needed respite care, yeah, we had, a, you know, we have a form and it's it's somewhat scientific in that, you know, you get a number score, but, you know, you're able to really paint a picture of your situation. Um, and then every month we'd go back and forth, you know, about a few different applications. Whoever's application this month makes the most sense you or need, we will finance whatever it takes to get your loved one cared for so that you get a break. Exactly. Yeah. And so we started doing that and immediately saw an impact, saw that we were changing people's lives in that moment. Now it's the grants we give. We give a, the first one we give is a 25 hour grant to be used. I want to say it's within three months. And then after you've received that grant, you can reapply for a grant that's 25 hours per week to be used within six months, which is pretty substantial. So that's what we've done. And we've given away, you know, I think it's close to 400,000 hours now in the years that we've done it. It's a really tangible thing that we've done to improve people's lives today. You know, I think, again, research is enormously important. Looking for a cure or treatment for this thing is is imperative. But it's also important to improve people's lives right now, which is, you know, why we do that and why we created support groups early on. We've had we've had virtual support groups since I think like 2014 or 2015. Really? Like long, long before the pandemic, we were connecting people on video chat. Because again, I had had this support group experience that was so specific and it really helped me talking to people who understood what I was going through as a child, as a young adult, trying to start my life while this was happening to my mom. And also the fact that it was virtual meant that if you were busy and you were at a job, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, you didn't have to then get in your car and drive 45 minutes to the support group. And again, it really makes a very tangible difference in people's lives, which I think is really important to do for caregivers because 
as my dad touched on, the load is heavy. Very, very heavy. Has this brought some joy in a really dark situation? It's funny. As my dad touched on a few minutes ago, this has been, it was a very, very, very long journey from the first time we saw things to when we lost her in 2020. I, you know, experienced a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. And, you know, I have a a dear friend of mine who is an incredibly wonderful, emotionally generous person who will let me unload on her and talk to her. And I remember we had this one conversation where I was just like, everything is awful. It's just terrible. Everything's terrible. And she's like, no, there is light somewhere. You have to find the light somewhere. I promise you there is light somewhere in this. I can, I still, I know exactly where we were sitting. I remember it exactly. And I was like, you're wrong. This is only horrible. And now with perspective and through the creation of HFC, through the community that I have, that I have personally found through HFC, I feel emotional about it, but I have found hope and I would rather have my mom. But I found so many people who have done so many beautiful things. Just give me a second. The community that I have found through HFC is so beautiful. And I've seen so much beauty in humans through it. That there is so much light in this darkness. So, you know, normally I'm a real rock about this stuff. (laughs) And, um... It's rare when I get emotional. I think it's because my dad is here. Because <laughs> the whole thing is emotional. And just, you know, I never know when it's going to wallop me. From both of you from different generations, when you have heard from other caregivers, what are the primary needs that they tell you about? What would have helped you earlier on if you had it to do over? I think, again, the one thing that I missed, didn't have for whatever reason, was a group of people to talk to that uh, I could relate to because we were younger. So to relate to those similar caregivers, that's something I missed. I really never had it. Um, And there was one woman in the entire time that I ever met that had something similar. I actually tried at that point to form my own uh, group. I actually went to a couple of doctors and asked their opinion, how do I do this? I handed out flyers. I got no responses. People, you know, it's it's a difficult thing. Yeah, Dad. I I mean, when we would read those applications, like how often would we, when we would talk about the applications, we would be like, oh, we, that person needs a Hoyer lift, right? At least a, a handful every single round would be like, we need to get in touch with them to get them a Hoyer lift. I mean, the physicality. I mean, again, my dad and our caregiver. <sighs> I mean, what they did with them, and again, my mom was was bedridden for, was it the last five years? Something like that. A Hoyer lift, by the way, is like a big mechanical sling for moving a person in and out of bed. And what Lauren has found is that being able to give the simplest bit of help to another family, like getting them a Hoyer lift or another assistance device, or paying for a few hours of respite care for somebody every week, being able to do that through the organization she built, that has been healing. 
we found light. We found, honestly, I found hope. I felt so hopeless, you know, with my mom. And through HFC, through the community we've formed, through the programs that we've created, I have found hope in helping humans navigate this journey, in giving people something that'll help them feel perhaps slightly less like my dad did back then. And I think that if we can do that for each other, then that's hope and that's light. It gave me an opportunity to go in a different direction, not think about my troubles, work on those things, help other people. And ultimately, at this point now, I'm the proudest dad because my son, Dan, who's been a part of HFC, Lauren, of course, and Seth, they make the world a better place. And that's just such a, that's a big light to have in your life as a result of all this. I did it because I feel like, in a way, that's what my mom would have done if she was in my position with my platform, with my opportunity, with my voice, with my community that I have access to. And, you know, we did it for her, but also because of her. Actor and caregiver Lauren Miller Rogan and her father, Scott Miller. Their nonprofit for family caregivers is called Hilarity for Charity. Next time on 24 7, how a comedian in Chicago put her improv training to work to talk to her dad with dementia. It's harder sometimes if you're in a scene and you keep saying no. But when you're saying yes, yes and, like they're doing improv and you're agreeing with what's going on and and let's do this and let's do this, you open up the possibilities for a conversation and for a world to produce comedy in. 24-7 is produced by me, Kitty Isley, with Ben Henry. We have editing help from Cindy Carpian. And special thanks this week to the crew at Hilarity for Charity. 24-7 is a production of Texas Public Radio.